0: Hello, and welcome to the Gamer's Tavern. Uh, This episode was a long time in the making after we recorded. Uh, It took a lot of time to edit. As you can see, we're way over our normal recording time. And on top of that, there were a lot of audio issues that popped up. Uh, There was a lot of clipping. And as you can tell, I popped my peas a lot. Uh, Hopefully, I was able to fix a lot of that. Uh, There was also some Skype. Lag that caused us to talk over one another a lot more than normal. I really apologize for all the audio issues. I fixed as much as I could, but I'm a mortal man. There's only so much that can be done. But honestly, the content in this episode goes way. Beyond any sort of audio issues that might come up, we have with this legendary game designer, Keith Baker, who is joining us to talk about how to run your games and make them even more awesome. So grab a drink and try to keep the volume a little bit lower than normal, and we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hello gamers, I'm Daryl Mott Jr. from Anacol News Tabletop and the Gamers Tavern Podcast, which you probably know because I'm betting I was just talking a second ago. I'm sure you already know about Drive-Thru RPG as it is the biggest repository for digital copies of your favorite games. Dungeons & Dragons, Shadowrun, Battletech, World of Darkness, Numenera, Fate, and so many more. And sometimes there are pennies on the dollar because, face it, PDFs can sometimes be so much more convenient than print copies. But if you need print copies, they sell those too. So if you want to support the Gamers Tavern podcast, click on the affiliate links in the show notes and check out Drive Through RPG.
1: Hello and welcome to The Gamer's Tavern, Episode 9. Wow, it's really hard to believe we've done 9 episodes so far. I'm Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mott. And tonight we've got with us Keith Baker. Hi, it's great to be here. Tonight we're going to talk about tips and simple tricks you can use to improve your game mastering. But first we want to ask Keith, uh, what we ask all of our guests on the show. Keith, can you tell us a little bit about your gamer character sheet?
2: Certainly. I suppose my primary class would be role-playing game designer. Most people know me for the campaign setting of Eberron for Dungeons & Dragons, uh, and that's something I created back in 2003. I've also written uh, six... Warforged. Yes, Warforged. I've also written uh, six of the novels uh, from the Eberron setting and a whole pile of the source books. However, in addition to that, I've made a card game called Gloom, that has been doing very well. Uh, we just had a new expansion for Gloom come out called Unquiet Dead. And I also have done sundry work on many other role-playing games from, you know, Feng Shui, Over the Edge, all kinds of odds and ends. Currently, I'm working on a new role-playing game uh, called Phoenix Nine Deaths. And that's something that will be crowdfunding early next year. But you can find out more information at my website, keith-baker.com.
1: Well, that sounds pretty interesting. And I have to say, first of all, um, I' big fan of your work. I really like Eberron. I'm also uh, the player of Feng Shui. Um, we've talked about that a little bit before. And we talked about Gloom, actually, quite a bit back in uh, Episode 8 with Nicole Wakeland. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gloom is a, is an award-winning card game that uh, apparently has a lot of people interested in it. I mean, uh, total fangirl. Brilliant the... design
0: on those cards, those, like, those yeah. clear cards and everything. I love it. Art style and the, just the gameplay is a hell of a lot of fun. It's just a blast.
1: Yeah, the overall design of it got quite a bit of a, a good
2: reception in the last episode, for sure. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I'm certainly... Uh... Gloom is one of the things I've done that I'm probably proudest of just because, you know, I came up with the idea from scratch, put it together in my basement and, uh, now it's out there in the world. So I'm, uh, I feel pretty good about Gloom. Awesome. So let's take a moment and talk about what we've been playing
1: lately. Daryl, what have you been playing lately?
0: Unfortunately, I have had absolutely no time for gaming recently. Uh, because, uh, I this past week before we recorded i edited that massive shatter Run episode seven that we did <laughs> and that was a beast to edit it was a big episode yeah it was almost two hours total oh man it was a blast though and a great episode and i've actually i actually li- it's the first one i've actually listened to again after i edited it because it was just so fascinating to me but beyond that i hosted a panel for Ethercon which is an online virtual convention that happens uh by the time this airs will be about 2 weeks ago. Uh all those panels are online streaming except for I think mine got lost in ironically the ether. <laughs> uh, cuz of a pro- cuz of a software crash. But, what was uh what was your panel about? Uh it was Immersion Studios which is an independent game company based out of Australia. Cool.
1: Oh. Nice. Okay.
0: That's doing th- that's doing this cool this cool sort of, uh, trying to build like a generic, uh, role playing system with all these different settings that layer onto it that can kind of mix and match, uh, a little bit GURPSY, but a little more tightly organized than that in terms of they have here's this campaign setting. Here's this campaign setting. Here's this campaign setting. It's just all the bits and pieces are all intercon, interchangeable. Cool. So you can take a race from this one and put it into this one. It, it was really fascinating to hear about, but you can find them uh online as well if you're curious about them. And then, of course, I stayed for the uh, Catalyst Game Labs Q&A that happened directly after mine. Uh But, yeah, I, I haven't got a chance to game because the day job has been sucking up a lot of my time. But that's not a problem this week or from now on because I got a new day job. Mm-hmm. Congrats. So I am, I am taking a week off to catch up on the podcast, catch up on my column and get some gaming done. I've got a stack of stuff I need to get Mm -hmm. through. So I'm really looking forward to this week and I am really looking forward to having weekends off so I can have a regular game night again. Finally. What about you, Keith? What have you been playing lately?
2: Well, uh, largely I've been playing a whole lot of Phoenix because we are uh, deeply in playtesting right now, and so I have a a number of groups that I'm running with Phoenix, and we're going to be getting uh, outside Game Masters soon uh, just to see how it works when you don't have a Keith in the box. So I'm really (laughs) enjoying that. And uh, beyond that, I actually just played my first game of D&D Next for quite a while uh, on Saturday. A friend of mine is starting up an Eberron campaign and, you know, hard for me to pass up a chance to get to play in Eberron. Uh, so I made a changeling mm-hmm. rogue.
0: Running a game... Dude, running the game for the guy who wrote the setting, that takes some balls. It's, uh, it's pretty entertaining, <laughs>
2: although he is moving the setting forward uh, a decade or so, so we're able to sort of discuss what might have happened, and, you know, it's, it's a little different from my personal Eberron, and that kind of works well. Uh, and beyond that, in terms of other kinds of games, yeah, in terms of other kinds of games, I've also uh, been playing a lot of Takedo recently, and uh, enjoying that.
0: That's the bamboo-eating-panda game garden game,
2: isn't it? No, that's a different one, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, Takedo is by... I want to say it's... Oh, uh, I'm thinking Forge. of Takinoko. And, uh, yeah, and Takedo is basically about taking a trip along a road and as you go you stop at hot springs and you, you Oh know, yeah that's the the, that's the, the japanese questions. tourist game. It's the japanese tourist game absolutely and uh but it's it's a relatively quick game it's certainly very uh attractive to look at and it's one of those ones where there's some strategy to it but you can't plan too far ahead the actions of the other players definitely you know have a uh big impact on the choices you make on your next turn so uh, so it's interesting I, I like it
1: so Keith if you could uh, just give us a elevator pitch for Phoenix mm-hmm. and tell us what it's about what is Phoenix about
2: so Phoenix is a card based role-playing game and uh, the short form of it is that it's a fantasy world uh, in which you are basically elite military forces trying to defend this empire and everything is going to hell. There's just a massive outbreak of pretty much any kind of supernatural threat you can think of. It's going on somewhere in the empire and uh, they are throwing you at whatever problem comes up and odds are good that uh, you're going in without enough information. You're probably over uh, out of your depth, and you're probably going to die. But the good <laughs> news is that because you are a phoenix, when you die, you actually come back stronger than before. Uh, the trick mm, is that you only get to come back eight times. And so it is a game in which death actually is the character advancement mechanism. That basically it is when you die based on uh, the nature of your death determines what lessons you learn and essentially uh, how you improve in your next life. And let's just do a, a number of interesting sort of things. The example I like to give is a sort of concrete sort of thing is you can, say, throw people into the minds of Moriah and, um, hey, you know, you can fight orcs, that's great. And then you run into a Balrog and there is just no freaking way your group can handle that Balrog and you can stay there and all die or, you know, someone can hold the bridge and, uh, and go down with it. And, and level up. To me, right, and level up. But that's sort of the point <laughs> to me is it's a game in which we can have that situation and for the person who makes that sacrifice and stays behind, the story isn't over. You know, they can okay. make the sacrifice and it has meaning. As I said, uh, you only get You know, eight more lives, and further, you don't come back right away, you don't come back at the point at which you died. So, one of the things is it allows us to have scenarios where you can fail and the story isn't over. You know, if you get dropped in a village that's having a zombie outbreak and you stop it, great. If you fail to stop it and you all die, well, you'll all come back but by the time you come back it's too late to contain it and we're going to have to you know burn that entire region and that will have long-term consequences in the campaign so basically you know sort of the point to me is it is a thing that lets death be a part of a story you know it's not the end but it's a thing that can have consequences and we can explore those consequences
1: that sounds really cool, but I do have a question for you. You said it was card-based. Does that mean there's no dice?
2: That means there's no dice. And one of oh. the points of that is that a lot of the um, the choices... I'm not going to get too deep into the mechanics here, but essentially you can always choose to make an attack successful, or almost always, if you are willing to basically put in the resources to do it and Mm. a lot of what it comes down to is what are you willing to do in order to succeed is this a time when it is worth it to invest you know your your sparks your willpower you know because you only have so much before you're going to die that's a bold move sir a very bold move (laughs) well it creates a different a different sort of experience and to me that's you know, the last project I was working on was a new setting, and that's something I still have on the back burner. But I don't know when I'll get back to it. And the point there was, as a setting, I wasn't creating a new system because it didn't need a new system. There was no reason not to play it with Fade or D and D or whatever you liked. Uh, with Phoenix, we're making a new system because it is something where the system concretely supports the the kind of story it is. You know, it's it's assists. Um, a system designed for a very specific type of story, as opposed yeah. to something like Eberron, which is intentionally designed so you can do Raiders of the Lost Ark, you can do The Maltese Falcon, you know, you can do a very wide range of stories. Phoenix is something where it's a very focused sort of type of story we're doing, and the system supports that. I should say I'm also working with a co-designer. Uh, his name's Dan Garrison, and he is a brilliant, awesome guy. Though this is his first. Uh, professional project so uh but anyhow
1: no that's a that's a really interesting you know choice that you made there because uh when I was working on Accursed, which is the setting I came up with uh this year for savage worlds, we got together the creators and we did, and we discussed whether we wanted to make a new system for it or not, and we came to the same conclusion that you did that if you want to tell like a bunch of different types of stories and and leave it open there's no reason not to use an existing system but if you want to tell a very specific type of story and use specific mechanics to achieve those goals that's when we decided that's something we would want to do with a different idea.
2: And and that's very much uh, with Codex the other uh, project you know the setting I was talking about Uh, One of the things I was considering was actually actively suggesting that people should potentially change systems between sessions that basically use the system that really fits the kind of story just because, A, there's so many good systems out there. But, you know, many systems are particularly good at, you know, this system's better at intrigue than at fighting. This system's better at fighting than at social interaction. You know, sort of what is this story about and which system is going to capture that best? So I was sort of playing around with that as a suggestion. But as I said, when it comes to Phoenix, the system we're developing really does do a lot of interesting things with the kind of story we're telling, and it makes it a very different experience.
1: One thing for sure, no one can accuse Keith Baker of not being innovative. (laughs) Suggesting that we change systems between sessions would be like, what? (laughs) That is is definitely an idea I've never heard before.
2: I was just going to say, you can also look at uh, Phoenix as a thing where it is also a card game in which we expect your characters to die. So, you know, you can look at it as a cross between Gloom and Eberron.
0: Yeah, if anyone else made the claims you were making, I would laugh in their face. But (laughs) if anyone's going to be able to pull it off, it's going to be you.
2: Oh, I was going to say, I'm doing a lot of playtesting right now. And as I say, we'll hopefully be crowdfunding, I would say, you know, hopefully March, we'll see, basically, we're definitely not going to do any kind of crowdfunding until we're 100% sure of cost production schedule, you know, all of that sort of thing. So for now, we're just continuing to, uh, to hone the system and continue to test.
1: Cool. What I've been playing lately, uh, I have gotten a chance to get together with a guy and play some uh, miniature games that I have very rarely played. Like uh, Battlefleet Gothic, is one of my favorite oh, cool. miniature games, mm-hmm. and we've been playing quite a bit of that down at the local store. Um, I'm running my accursed playtest still on uh, every weekend, and my group, <laughs> excellent, my group is uh, doing some very interesting things uh, coming up this week. They're going to be assaulting an airship mounting experimental weaponry to uh, ensure that the Accursed are not wiped out in the Nation of Manrea. So, good luck to them <laughs> on that.
0: It's about to say, airship, everything. You sure you're not playing Eberron?
2: Well, of course, one of my favorite elements of Eberron is Droam, which is the Nation of Monsters. I have an adventure I've run quite a lot that is is people as a group of adventurers from Droam. Uh, so, I appreciate the idea. is all I'm saying.
1: It's cool. I think you'd, I think you'd like it. Definitely check it out at accursedrpg.com and we have a kickstarter page you can look at all of our really cool art and that's we're going to be releasing accursed uh for sale in mid-december is the plan so it'll very very shortly be ready i've been doing all the art direction and the overall development and uh, we're really excited about it but i'm not here to talk about (laughs) accursed so i'm going to keep that to a minimum uh just say that in addition to the the things I just mentioned, um, I've also been playing Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition just came out with mm-hmm. the Baldur's Gate 2 collection, which mm-hmm. includes not just Baldur's Gate 2, but also the expansion uh, Throne of Veil, mm-hmm. and it includes all the new characters and all the new updates, and I just, I just adore Baldur's Gate, I've, I'm one of the biggest fans in the world of that and it is such a blast to play that game again and to play it with all the new little tweaks and and, and uh graphical improvements and, you know, better... uh there, There's more encounters, there's more characters to talk
2: to. It just took an already great game and made it better. I have to say that Torment was always one of, you know, my favorite computer role-playing games of all time, so I'm excited to see where they're going with uh the Numenera Torment.
1: Oh, yeah. Planescape Torment is definitely, in my opinion, the best video game role-playing game experience you can possibly have um Mm -hmm. but i'm i'm somewhat biased and i'm going to go ahead and just say that's a very subjective opinion
2: (laughs) oh i agree with you so you know
0: you're you're not the only one that holds that one there's a lot of people that say the same thing yeah
1: so but that's uh basically what i've been playing lately so if we are ready to move on and we can go ahead and talk about game mastering sounds good Okay, let's start with planning. When you're planning your game as game master, what are some of the tricks you use to maybe reduce prep time?
2: Well, I mean, there's a lot of different things. It's part of the question is how you run your game, and I personally prefer more of a sandbox style of play, uh, where rather than having a very set. Plan for exactly what's going to happen, or having a dungeon where it's a question of do you go left or right. Uh, I prefer adventures where the players have a fair amount of control over what direction they go, where they have a clear goal. You know, they sort of know what they're trying to accomplish, but there's a lot of different ways they could take it. And so for me, you know, preparing an adventure is very much sort of coming up with the concrete what the key scenes that are going to matter in this story are going to be and then trying to come up with sort of as many sort of odds and ends of and what are the things that are connect going to connect these you know what are the things that could happen in between depending what paths that they take so as i say that's certainly a thing for me is is basically having a list of of the sort of major locations Important NPCs that I could decide to bring in, depending what they do, and just sort of assembling all the different elements. But as I said, that's for a more sort of sandbox style where you don't know exactly what the players are going to do. I don't, you know. Other than that, it's uh, you know, it's a broad question. What sort of things do you do?
0: I've got one that I've learned whenever it comes to because I've tried running sandbox games, and my groups tend not to like that they like something where it's they like kind of being led around by the nose almost because I give them some, some Mm -hmm. groups will love being able to explore and look around and stuff. But Mm -hmm. at least my last group, if I didn't have, okay, here's the breadcrumb trail to where you need to go next. They would just meander and get lost in the plot and wander around. But one thing I've learned when I have run sandbox games that where I was running them and the players were exploring it is something that helped me out a lot in focusing. What I'm doing is, if there's a major decision like, okay, you guys, you guys tracked down this map and this map, uh, gave you the location of this thingy that you wanted to go investigate, but you decided to go do this thing instead first, ask them at the end of your session, okay, now that you guys have done this, what are your plans to do next? Right. And then they'll tell you, okay, we're gonna go to this location. So you go, okay, I've got to get that location narrowed down and focused and stat and basically figure out that location. It gives you a week to prep instead of having to prep, okay, well they can go here, 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 right, and here. Right, right. So I better have all those ready now. It lets you yeah. you can give all those locations a general overview, but it lets you now I'm gonna st- stat out all the monsters and the NPCs and the traps and everything else and get the map together perfectly and do every little thing for this location because I know where they're going now.
2: Well, there's a couple different things I'd say there. I mean, one of the questions is we sort of started this as what do you do sort of right before the game, but that goes back to the whole question of what do you do before you even start the campaign? To me, you know, two of the most important things for a game master are know your players you know yeah, just uh, and that comes on two levels both for you just personally you know get to know you got to make sure you know what do they like are they people who want to you know negotiate and have intrigue with someone or are they knights at the dinner table and they're just going to want to kill every npc you throw into a room you know part of the thing is that to me what makes role playing you know such a, a great experience and you know the thing that me allows it to hold its own against computer games and things like that is the fact that the story gets to be tailored for the players. You know, everybody comes to it wanting something different and you have the chance to make that the story that they want. You know, and you working together have a chance to make that happen. So one thing is just knowing your players. And I say this because one of my favorite games I ever ran was a game that I told everybody... It was essentially a sort of Judge Dredd meets Neuromancer uh, cyberpunk superhero campaign. And they I all mean, made their cyberpunk superheroes, and they're like the, you know, essentially, if you will, the judges, you know, the, the superpowered defenders of this city. And what I didn't tell them was that it was actually a Cthulhu campaign. And <laughs> so they uh, thought, oh, we're going to be fighting, uh, you know, crazy supervillains and having monologues. And instead, all sorts of horrible, inexplicable things began happening. And it worked really, really well because they didn't know what to expect. And to me, one of the most challenging things with horror is, you know, when you're running a Call of Cthulhu game, the players know it's a Call of Cthulhu game. They're expecting things to be, you know, disturbing and weird. And, you know, Lovecraft himself said the greatest fear is fear of the unknown. And so here, because their expectations were for something completely different, They really were taken by surprise, and they didn't know what to expect, and they didn't know what was going to happen next, and it really worked really well. But the point of all this is I needed to know that the players would enjoy that, and that the players would embrace it, because a different group of players could have been pissed off that we were supposed to be playing superheroes. What is this? Yeah, it's fair to say that bait-and-switch does not work with all groups. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying is I would never do that with a group of players I didn't know. Conversely, what I normally would do with a group is to actually at the start of the game talk to them about what kind of game do you want. You know, I'd be interested in doing a campaign, you know, like one of the last times I ran an Eberron game a few years back, I sat down and we said we could do something set in the last war. And it'll be a war story and you'll be a unit of soldiers and you're working together. Or we could do a espionage campaign uh, where, you know, it's all intrigue in the Cold War. And, so, you know, I presented things that I wanted to do, but then I let them say, yeah, we're not interested in that intrigue thing. You know, we'd much rather do the war story. And then having done that, talk to them about, okay, what is it that interests you about a war story? What kind of things do you want to see happen? And so essentially, it's the point you were making earlier about ask them where they want to go next. Because I'm saying from the start, ask them where do they want to go generally? You know, is this something where you want to be exploring lost continents and finding ancient treasures? Or do you want it to be, you know, the Sopranos and Sharon?
1: Well, I think what you're talking about right now is the Mm -hmm. social contract that you all kind of get everybody on the same page at the start of the campaign. We're talking about planning for a campaign, not really like an individual session. And you've got some great points there because it is it is really important to, number one, know your group, and number two, communicate with them and make sure that their expectations and your expectations are all understood equally by both parties. And that's just going to make for a better campaign overall right from the start. And if you get some things... If you get some things set down like tone and you get some things set down like, like, well, like what he was saying, like, uh, basically if you understand where I'm, where I'm coming from and I understand what you want to see happen, we can work together to build that together.
0: And if you want to hear some exactly. examples of how not to do that thing, <laughs> go back to our horror stories and gaming episode and hear me tell about many times in which I played the wrong campaign with my <laughs> players because I didn't discuss it with them first.
2: I've had a few of those myself. So going sort of back to, to some of the earlier points, when you were saying, oh, make sure to sort of find out where they want to go next so that you don't sort of prepare traps and things for a place they don't even go, um, a lot of times if I'm doing something, when I say sandbox, it'll still be something where there is a clear goal. So I may say you are trying to catch an escaped fugitive who you know is in the city of Great Wall. And essentially, I know that they will eventually catch him, assuming they don't totally screw things up. So I make that encounter. You know, I build out his his base. But then I can come up with what are the things they could possibly do to try to find him. You know, uh, they could talk to this Dragon house. They could go to this place. You know, they could follow the money trail. So I come up with at least a couple ideas of my own of these are different things they could do that could lead them to that final encounter. I, am of course, have to be prepared, and this is why I'm saying think about NPCs, think about things like that, for them to think of something I didn't. But what I'm saying is that I know in a situation like that, I both know what the final end result of it is going to be. And generally speaking, I know, well, they're not going to get there until they at least find the middleman here. And so, okay, that's another encounter that I put together. And the point is, I leave it flexible as to how they find that guy. But again, they know and I know they've got to find that guy if they're going to you know, accomplish what they're trying to accomplish.
1: Yeah, I, you're, you're absolutely right here, and I just want to point out I think it's really important to – know as a GM, that when you're talking about breadcrumbing, when you're talking about giving right. them those options to get from A to B, it's important to realize, and this is something that was hit uh, by Ken Height very mm-hmm. recently, um, in, uh, the gumshoe system, is finding mm-hmm. the clue is not nearly Absolutely. as much fun as interpreting the clue. So my suggestion mm-hmm. would be very mm-hmm. strongly to GMs who are, you know, listening to Keith and just nodding their heads and saying, yes, that's what I want to do, is Keep in mind and remember that you want them to get the breadcrumb. Having them interpret the breadcrumb is a lot more fun. So don't get in their way. You know, if if there's a role and they need to get a clue and they fail the role, they still get the clue. They, there's just a
0: complication
1: involved. Well, that's, that's, all, I would that's say all about... about that. They might miss yeah.
0: some of the context or they might not find... They may find it, but they won't, don't find it in the way that they... Okay, so this you found you found the scroll that has that he had dropped instead of you find the scroll he had dropped with this t- little drawing on the sand that was next to it or something like that I'm, I'm coming up off the top of my head but they might miss something attached to it
2: yeah. i mean that's the basic concept of failing forward uh you know is is a failure may make things more difficult uh now you may have to you know deal with this gang that you weren't going to have to deal with or the guy may know you're coming or things like that uh, but that, yeah, you want to make sure you weren 't planning a game where a failed die roll suddenly ends the story because yeah, you, where you, you do can they stonewall
0: yourself here? very easily if you do something like that,
2: going back to the interpreting clues, it is very interesting on that of I have this one game I ran when I was traveling around the world that I ended up running the same adventure fifty six times and wow. part of the adventure, and the thing about it is because of my style of running things. It never played exactly the same way twice, and I never got bored of running it. And, you know, I was always interesting to see, well, what did the players come up with this time? One of the elements of it uh, was a murder mystery. You know, they're basically trying to find this guy, and the people, you know, the possible leads keep turning up dead. And so they're sort of on the trail of of this trying to figure out what's going on, who's killing the people they need to talk to, you know, what's the story here? And I remember the third time I ran it, about three quarters of the way through the adventure, the players, you know, one of the players stopped and said, well, wait a second. We've got clue one, clue two, and clue three. It's Colonel Mustard. And they're all like, "Yes, you're <laughs> right. It's totally Colonel Mustard, and it totally was not Colonel Mustard." <laughs> um, and the thing was, it was sort of this choice of you've got this whole thing of you don't want to have the players essentially feel that they can't fail, because then what's the point? If it doesn't matter wh- who they think the murderer is, uh, because they'll always be right, well, then what's the point of having having a mystery? At the same time. The key here was that their interpretation of the clues made sense. It just wasn't an interpretation I had foreseen someone making. And so looking at it, I was like, okay, well, I can just go ahead and they can discover it's Miss Scarlet, and they'll be like, huh, okay, I didn't see that. Or I can do what I did, which was change the ending. So they get there, and it's Colonel Mustard, and they, you know, are high-fiving, and they think they're the best detectives ever. The point of it was again, it was about the interpretation of the clues, and they what they and their interpretation made sense. It just wasn't the one I had come up with, and so it was a better story for having them you know for changing my plan and embracing theirs because it was the story that made sense to them and what well, it was, I like about it was role the better playing, experience right
1: it was the better exactly. was better experience because they all had more fun that way.
2: Well and the point was they felt like they had solved a mystery and if i just right, said and you're wrong uh right exactly and there were there's a couple ways to handle this i could have just said you're wrong and they would have been like huh you know uh, i guess i guess that that was possible should have seen that huh the other possibility of course was i could have continued to throw out more breadcrumbs and tried to push them back towards my original plan you know, it's not Choo-choo. like you have to do it, but like I said, as this case was, their interpretation made sense. It was you know it was just that I hadn't considered that, and that's what I like about role playing. Is when I write a novel, the only you know the only vision I get is is my vision. And when I watch a TV show, I have tons of times watching TV where I will see something, I'll say, "Oh my god, they're doing this great plan. Oh, that's so clever." And then it gets to the end and it's not what I thought it was going to be and I'm just like, "Really? That's the plot you went with? That's lame."
1: And what I like <laughs> it sounds about Sounds like you and I watch a lot of the same TV.
2: <laughs> yeah. And what I like about role playing is that in this situation, I was able to look at it and say that's the answer that makes sense to them. So why not make it that answer?
1: I've got to tell a, a quick story in response to this, uh, actually, Keith, because it's you have an excellent mm-hmm. point there about empowering players and about, you know, kind of cherishing the experience rather than the story of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got a really good story about this. My friend uh, Robert Dorf runs uh, superhero games, uh, and I've played in a lot of them, and he's a very, very talented game master. And... He was running a game, a superhero game, with uh, his friends and his wife happens to be one of his players and has been in almost all of his games. So Mm -hmm. during the beginning of the adventure, uh, he starts them off with the superheroes repelling an attack from a giant monster attacking the city, and he Mm -hmm. has this big scene planned with how the giant monster is going to attack and how they're going to fend it off, and all of a sudden his wife's character says, wait, this is a distraction from the real crime. I'm (laughs) going to stop fighting the giant monster. And go look for the real crime. Because that's always how it happens. There's a distraction Mm -hmm. from the real crime. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Robert was faced with a very tough decision. He's like, well, this adventure is really about the giant monster attacking the city. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But he wanted to, you know, empower his wife and say, well, okay, you're right. There is a real crime happening somewhere else in the city. Because that was the more fun answer. And... You know, I, I don't envy him for being put in that position. Uh, certainly, <laughs> it had to have been a little bit awkward. But it was, you know, I think ultimately it was a good illustration of player empowerment, you know, and, and trying to decide, you know, what's the best course of action now.
2: And and that's the point, is it's a balancing act. Uh, because like I said, if play, the players just feel like it doesn't matter you know, we'll get the answer right, whatever we come up with. Well, then there's not really much point to having a mystery. And as I said, and with a different group of players, with a different plot, I would have tried to just steer them back onto the path I had planned. But it is a matter of you always want to be ready to to let go of what you had planned and you know, embrace the ideas that the players come up with that, you know, this isn't something you have or have to, or should be doing alone. That's
1: a really good point, Keith. And I want to ask you a question actually that kind of follows up on something you said way earlier. You mentioned that you were talking about a sandbox style approach and you said Mm -hmm. that you would create a number of key scenes. And I I want to ask Mm -hmm. you this question. If you are doing a session for say a four hour session Mm -hmm. How many key scenes do you prepare for a four-hour
2: session? Totally depends on the system because, you know, it's the kind of thing where, especially if you're dealing with a combat system, certain systems are going to handle it much faster or slower than the others. Personally, I tend to do essentially a key scene an hour. Okay. And then I have things to fill in extra space if I need them. So that's the point is I'll always come up with a list of sort of little side things that could happen if essentially we're running, you know, we're running long or short. And the point is, if I know the long-term goal, you know, I can certainly predict, okay, this is where they're trying to get to. They're going to have to go to at least two of these places uh, out of these three or four I've come up with to get the information they need to get to the final place. So, given that, it may be that I have a couple that they don't use, but on the other hand, I may pull those those scenes or locations back in the next adventure. You know, I mean, again, ideally, it's not wasted effort because I'll find some use for it somewhere down the line. Right. You know, beyond that, it, again, just gives the players the feeling that they are choosing their path and that it's not just, uh, you know, on the rail. Now, as you were saying earlier, sometimes players want to be on a path. You know, it's, it, it's all about knowing your group. It's just for this style of game. That's how I do things.
1: Well, there's, you know, there's multiple t- styles of game. Daryl and I have talked about in the past um, what, something we call the adventuring paradigm, where, mm-hmm. like in a game of Shadowrun, the adventuring paradigm is you are a team of Shadowrunners, a Johnson hires a Mr. Johnson hires you for his very specific job, uh, which what? is not that different from an old man in a tavern who has a quest for you. And right. if you have a strong adventuring paradigm in a particular uh, campaign or a particular game setting, uh, it, it can reduce some of that prep time on the GM because he has a pretty solid way of just sort of handing the players at least the starting point for the night's adventure. Um, Dark Heresy has yeah. another very strong adventuring paradigm
2: as well. Well, and that's, that's the point with Phoenix, is that in Phoenix, you are a military strike team. You know, it's essentially, uh, while the setting is nothing like it, uh, scenario-wise, I mean, it's a little like Aliens. You know, you are being dropped into an area with a clear goal. And so that is something that, again, when I say Phoenix tells a specific type of story, you know, it's because you're not just an adventuring group uh, randomly deciding are we in it for money or are we in it for whatever. It's you are people with a very clear mission and you might have different ways to accomplish that mission. You know at the start of the adventure you know exactly what it is uh, you're trying to accomplish and generally speaking you probably have a limited time in which to accomplish it. So how many drops is this for you, Lieutenant?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: Game over, man. Simulated.
0: <laughs> <laughs> one one of the things i wanted to go back to when you were talking about mystery uh one thing i would really like to point out for when you're prepping an adventure or when you're writing the story or plot to your adventure mm-hmm. there's really two different kinds of mysteries you can run there's one that's mm-hmm. typically the television mystery which is a more procedural that mm-hmm. is very definitely a breadcrummy point a to point b to point c it's the it's like law and order and castle and psych and all those shows pretty much follow the blah, blah. same pattern which is which is you find out about the crime you find a clue it leads you to this person you talk to this person they may try to run they may try to fight you whatever you find out the information that leads you to this person that leads them to this person that leads them to this person that mm-hmm. leads them to the suspect who may have been person 2 that they talked to in the first place but Right. There's not really a lot of actual, quote-unquote, figuring out the mystery in it. It's just the mystery is the structure for the story exactly. you're telling. Yep, absolutely. Now, there's also the whodunit, which is bigger in, if you're doing a mystery film, uh especially mm-hmm. the TV movies that they'll do, like the PBS ones especially, mm-hmm. whether they're two hours long, or novels especially, will be a lot more whodunit. Uh, Hercule Poirot, obviously, mm-hmm. is one of the prototypes of that in which you as the audience are given all the information and then you have to piece it together along with the detective mm-hmm. now one of these is very easy to run in a role-playing game and that is the linear yes. style that's yep. the procedural it is very simple to run that because it's the same thing as any other adventure except for instead of trying to beat the monster to take its treasure they're trying to capture the 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 suspect to get the information the mm-hmm. different the who done it is can be very difficult to run in a role playing game because your players probably aren't trained detectives so sometimes right. they may not piece all the clues together as well unless you give them either you can hand it to them on a silver platter so it's obvious or you can make them work for it in which case they may sit there for 2 hours arguing over who it could be there's one trick that i use when i'm doing mm-hmm. an actual mystery where they have to actually puzzle it out mm-hmm. i do what i call three stages of clues the first mm-hmm. stage is going to be something very very subtle. Mm-hmm. Uh like that someone's hair was disheveled or some or something that's really subtle that I'm definitely telling them I'm giving them the clue or they're obviously going to find the clue and but they're going to have to work to piece that together. Mm-hmm. If they don't get it, I move to the medium sized clue. Uh that's something that it's not going to take nearly as much puzzling together and drawing from facts and Worrying about the history or whatever to try to figure that out. Mm-hmm. If they still don't get it, that's my smack them upside with the clue hammer. Okay, here's the clue that's an obvious blinking arrow pointing to the next thing. So that's that's just the way I do it to keep them on track.
2: Yeah, th- this comes back to the the sort of a couple of the points we were making before is um, you can certainly design an adventure in which, given enough time. The mystery will essentially solve itself. And, you know, they will eventually uh, end up where they need to be. You know, the key there is if you have something like that in place, you do want to have them feel that they are rewarded if they uh, solve it themselves. You know, or that there's back consequences the whole, if they
0: don't solve it fast enough. Like, well, precisely, we, have to stop, we have to stop him before he kills again.
2: And if you don't, and if you have to wait for that third yep. clue hammer, then yeah, he killed again that's what comes back to what we were saying before about failing forward. is, you know, that sort of works both ways when you fail. Well, okay, that doesn't end things, but maybe it makes things more challenging. And the reverse is saying, well, when you succeed, it means things are, you know, you feel that that has rewarded you in some, some way that it made a difference that you succeeded. Uh, I was in a campaign, actually not a campaign, a one shot recently, that the guy was using the Dread system. Do you know Dread?
0: That's the one with the Jenga tower, isn't it?
2: That's the one with the Jenga tower. And essentially, anytime time uh, you try to do something risky, you have to draw tiles from a Jenga tower. The Game Master tells you how many to draw, and if the tower falls, you die. So it creates this building level of suspense of, you know, uh, although one can argue exactly, you know, the sort of nature of suspense in this sort of thing. Basically, things get more and more dangerous and someone eventually is going to go down. This particular scenario was a sort of gravity meets Armageddon. We are trying to get this rickety rocket ship to the moon to shut down this this doomsday thing. You know, there's this doomsday cannon on the moon. And one of the things he did there was to, at the start basically ask us what is a city that's important to our character, you know, somewhere that either (laughs) came from our hometown or what's, you know, what's, what is it and why is it important? Houston, you have a problem. (laughs) Exactly. And the point was if we'd failed early on, rather than just saying, Hey, we're 10 minutes into the game and you suck at Jenga. uh, Well, you're dead. (laughs) Basically what he had in place was, Well, every time you screw up, boom, there goes your hometown, you know, and sort of a way to have something that was a frightening incentive and yet was not actually death for us.
1: He just put some meaningful stakes into the game.
2: Exactly. And that's a whole other sort of discussion. But I mean, it does come back to the failing forward is having things that the players care about beyond simply their hit points. You know, what are yeah. the things you've put in the game that you can take away or hurt or things like that uh, that give them a stake?
0: And I know that uh, angry D- the Angry DM has been doing a blog series for a while over a campaign he's been running in which... The player characters in this, it's an, uh, I do believe he's running D&D or a, it's a Pathfinder game, mm-hmm. but the characters, just like Phoenix, they're immortal. They don't know why. Every time mm-hmm. they die, they are resurrected within like a day or a week or something like that at this shrine. And mm-hmm. he's doing this a challenge to himself because if you've ever read Angry DM's blogs or his Twitter feed, he is a killer DM. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he's trying he's created a campaign in which he cannot kill the players. A TK yeah. means nothing because they're all going to pop back up again. Right. And he did it as a challenge to prove that player death is not the only consequence. So right. sure, they they were being reckless and charging head forward and weren't planning and weren't thinking, and they failed at something. And when they came back, they found out that a village that they had been using as their home, the firstborn, like I think it was like the firstborns, had all died. Mm-hmm. And some of these were characters that they knew, characters that they, NPCs that they had been interacting with. Now, and yeah. it really hit a blow yeah, to you. This,
1: this it, impacts something yeah. that I do when I'm, when I'm writing a story for an adventure. One thing I always try to put in there is mm-hmm. I try to put in a moral quandary or a very difficult choice. And the reason why is because I want to give the player characters an idea that they made some kind of meaningful impact. At the end of the yeah, campaign, absolutely. Now, this this goes back to something we've talked about a little before in this episode, where it's really not so much about the story; it's about the experience. And so, mm-hmm. I'm trying to give them that experience of, of after the adventure's over. They're all like, "Yeah, well, we chose X, so Y happened," right? They they feel right. like they are the the agents of that change. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples, at least for our listeners, a couple of examples mm-hmm. of ways you can you can look at uh, to give you some ideas for this. Uh, a really good example is mm-hmm. actually the um, Dragon Age video game from Bioware had a whole bunch of really good, tough choices that your character was asked to make along the way. Mm-hmm. You had to decide you know, whether the child would live or die or whether his mom would live or die, but somebody was going to die, and it was the only way to solve the crisis. So mm-hmm. think about that. If you, When you're designing a story for your game and you want to give your player characters a feeling like they made some kind of impact, come up with an idea that makes them choose between two outcomes and make it, you know, make it to where it's a meaningful choice. And I think you'll find that they will enjoy that story and enjoy that experience of playing in that story much more.
0: One way you can really pull that is if you give another way to give them that choice is to give them the option of, okay, if you take this action, it's going to benefit you, but it's going to be really, really bad for someone that you know or care about or, you can take the option and take the, the bad thing onto yourselves to save the other people. And that's, that's more along the lines of that one's really touching. You have to know your group because they can take it to a really dark place in some cases, <laughs> yeah. depending on the campaign. But that's a really good way to add that sort of moral quandary. And it's, it's, it's also kind of like that. Okay. You came across the goblin child. Do you kill it or do you let it live mm-hmm. that thing that, that, that moral in game? It, it can be really, really It can end really, really badly if you do it that way. But if you handle it well and your group can handle it and play it maturely, that can add a lot of depth to your story is Mm -hmm. giving them that choice to, are we heroes or are we, are we, are we, especially if there's consequences that, yeah, it's going to benefit us, but we need this to benefit us so we can solve the bigger problem. So it's a question of, do we, are we always good? Do we always have to save the one person or are we more focused on the greater good? Uh, mm-hmm. are, are we able to make these little sacrifices along the way to accomplish a bigger goal that's going to have more impact for more people in the greater part of the world?
1: What does it mean to be a hero?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's the question I yeah. always like to try and answer.
2: And do your players want to be heroes? You know, yeah. um, certainly going back to Eberron, I mean, one of the things we said from Eberon, for Eberron uh, sort of from day one was that it was about Shades of Grey. And, uh, you know, again, film noir was one of the early inspirations. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, also having things where good and evil are not is clear cut. And, you know, the person who is the evil person may actually nonetheless be a very valuable and important person for that community. And if you just come in and kill this guy, well, what's going to happen now he's gone? Um, and likewise with Phoenix. Phoenix is certainly one where all our adventures are, again, designed that there's no just single possible outcome. Uh, You know, it very much is. There's different choices you can make, and for that matter, you could also fail. Uh, And that any which way, uh, the consequences of those choices are things that you will carry with you and things that will affect further stories down the road. And I think that's sort of the thing to me, is players just feeling that their actions have consequences. Exactly. That, that that's good. Or that,
0: that was something I wanted to talk about a little bit was if you do this fail, uh, do the failing forward thing. One mm-hmm. of the big drawbacks to that is that again, like you said earlier, it can feel like they're getting everything handed to them. There's no actual challenge because even when they right. screw up, they still win. But one thing that I really always tried to do in my games is make sure that they see the consequences of their actions, both good and Absolutely. ill. If they if they get rid of this goblin tribe that's been harassing the village, or if they uh, manage to steal this prototype and get it to the get it to the corporation, or extract this willing person in Chatteron mm-hmm. from one corporation to the place he wants to work, I want them to see the effects that this had on the world at mm-hmm. large. So if they wipe out the goblin tribe, oh hey, that goblin tribe no longer affects the village so yay the trade routes free however the the much higher level brigands who were not affecting the trade route so the village is safe but the trade routes in danger because uh these wandering uh people were coming in and now they're attacking the trade routes because they were outnumbered by the goblins before so they weren't attacking now the mm -hmm, goblins are gone mm -hmm. so the village is safe but the trade routes in danger so you have to deal with that problem Or, like I said, the extraction, or just make sure that they see that when they make these choices for good, for good or for ill, have them, if they do something good and they do something heroic, reward them for it. If they succeed, reward them for it. Okay. You now see the effects of, when you wiped out this goblin tribe, the village is safe. You see everyone is a lot more relaxed and happy, and there's smiles on people's faces for the first time since you've been to this village, because they're no longer in danger. And then you can bring in the other plot elements if you want, but if they do something that's not as good, like, okay, we're going to break into this corporation, steal the prototype, and get it to this guy, uh, then you read in the paper the next day, or the, not the paper, but the news feed and chatter on, but anyway, <laughs> you see it... Uh, R&D developer so and so commits suicide after project goes missing. Mm-hmm. So oh hey, we just did something that had impact on the world. This guy this guy because of our actions killed himself.
2: Again, it still comes back to you got to know your players and know whether that's something that will have any impact on them cuz you know, some players will be like, "Ha, that's pretty funny." You know that and it's, uh, that, it that it guy depends on the suicide. tone.
1: It depends on the tone in the mm-hmm. campaign too. Like if I'm running my Venture Brothers hero uh, campaign, mm-hmm. which is just for fun, and it's just for people who love the show Venture Brothers, and just to sort of enjoy the crazy fun that that world has. I'm not going to be so heavy on the you know deep right. moral quandaries yeah, or, that, or tough choices. It's really going to be just, more about zany hijinks. So it's yeah. It's yeah those were just two things tone.
0: that popped immediately. Those are just two things that popped immediately into my head as terms of yep, yep. showing the consequences. Even in something that's cartoony like that, or even in a game like paranoia, you can still have those show the consequences. It's oh, yeah. okay. You killed, you, you killed all this guy's, uh, you killed all this guy's clones, but one. So now he's just got the one clone and, uh, he's. Uh, something ab- you, you can show, you can show even comedically. You can show the consequences of the actions, but their actions should have some impact. It, it, yes, absolutely. It, It's up to you to determine the tone of the, the tone of your game. And you can actually kind of twist your tone around a little bit by how you present those consequences. If you want a big pink mohawk, uh, Shadowrun game, uh, you can show, uh, instead of, do, if you're wanting a deep, like, black trench coat game, yeah, go with my suggestion, because that's kind of what I play. If you're doing right, right. the pink mohawk over the top thing, you might the consequent might be that this company's stock fell, and you can point and laugh at them ha 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 and then uh and then show on the vid feed uh the uh the v p of that department throwing a hissy fit at a press conference
2: well, i mean another and there's weird nothing example. wrong with that yeah, and another weird example of just throwing things around uh you know you have the guys get the prototype weapon and sell it to unscrupulous bastard uh incorporated. Uh, and uh, next fight when someone gets, or, you know, next adventure when someone gets seriously injured, oh, point out that, well, that's because the gang is armed with those, you know, new weapons from <laughs> Unscrupulous Bastard Incorporated. <laughs> and, you know, so all I'm saying is there it is. Something and those that new armor piercing rounds are on the street them, now. You know? now. Uh, so, yeah, you know, again, it's a matter of finding the hooks that are going to resonate with your players, whether it's the, oh, they'll be sad that. You know, the they they've crippled this this researcher and and caused him to commit suicide, or whether they'll be sad because they are now being shot by more powerful weapons. You know, <laughs> uh, one way or another, you can find something that is going to feel meaningful to them. And and we've been focusing on the negatives here, but again, you know, and and that when they do something that they feel good about, and they feel that they made an exceptional, you know, they were exceptional in their actions or their choices or things, well, hopefully they should feel that that makes a difference on the world too. And they see the positive from their actions, as we've been talking about.
1: Yeah, for me, like, when it comes to that, when it comes to DMing and, and a story, I, there's nothing better than when it feels very immersive, when it feels like, mm-hmm. you know, like it's responding to me, right? It's interactive, it's, it's immersive, I feel like I'm, you know, actually a part of that game. And that's where I think you really get the most benefit out of making the game interactive and making the game uh, react to what the players do.
2: And, and, I mean, there's lots of different ways to do this, and there's lots of ones that work with different groups. I mean, I I'll just say in the Phoenix games I've been running uh, recently, one of the things I tend to do is to ask the players to tell me about their commanding officer. You know, instead of just saying your commanding officer is this grizzled old guy called, you know, Sergeant, uh, you know, Flargan uh, and and just throwing him at him. I say, well, you tell me about your, your commanding officer. What's your relationship with him? What's he like? What's he called? And that way the group themselves sort of builds their story a little. And then I'll pick oh, it yeah. up and I'll fill that guy out. And, you know, what I'm saying is that they want to be a crusty drill sergeant. Well, then that's what they're going to get and if they want him to be a very encouraging wise guy well then that's what they'll get and it's a slightly different approach you know sometimes it's better you know sometimes what the group wants is for me to have a deep world with deeply defined npcs but sometimes here it works because they feel you know this is the movie they want to see if you see what oh, i'm yeah. saying
1: this is absolutely one of the points I had written down for, uh, for random tips and tricks later in the show. But, um, opportunities for the PCs to be creative is a big, big tool in the DM's tool bag where you can say things like, yeah, I love your idea about, you know, let's make the commanding officer. Uh, things that I like to do is like costume changes. Like in, in a very mm-hmm. recent, uh, accursed game, the player characters had to get on a train and there's only one train in like the, the setting. So it's a very high class, noble, You know, it's it's the Orient Express. You know, back in its heyday. Mm -hmm. So the the characters had to change their wardrobe from their adventuring gear, armor, and weapons, and wear something you know upscale. And I didn't tell them what they were wearing. I said, what what do you think your character wants to wear? What you know, since you can afford basically Mm -hmm. you know whatever you want. What are you gonna what are you gonna dress in? And it was really cool to see them come up with you know their new looks and Mm -hmm. their it gave you not not only insight into their characters but into the 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 fun they were having with the setting. And I like the fact that you allow them to make up their their commanding officer because you can also do that with their background. You can say, um, absolutely. You can ask them like, is there a guy that you know in this city? Well, who is he? You know, if you give them a little mm-hmm. bit of narrative control, player characters really are uh, players. I should say players really eat that up as a a fun way to you know get them involved and get them engaged with uh, the story and the setting that you're building.
0: And that really starts bringing us more towards characters that you're using in your game as NPCs and how you can really make the world come alive through them. But before we do that, I'm getting a little bit parched, so I'm going to get another round from the bar. So we'll be right back after these words from our sponsor.
2: All right. All right.
0: Hello gamers, I'm Daryl Mott Jr. from Anacol News Tabletop and the Gamers Tavern Podcast, which you probably know because I'm betting I was just talking a second ago. I'm sure you already know about Drive-Thru RPG as it is the biggest repository for digital copies of your favorite games. Dungeons & Dragons, Shadowrun, Battletech, World of Darkness, Numenera, Fate, and so many more. And sometimes there are pennies on the dollar, because face it, PDFs can sometimes be so much more convenient than print copies, but if you need print copies, they sell those too. So if you want to support the Gamers Tavern Podcast, click on the affiliate links in the show notes and check out Drive RPG.
1: And we're back with the Gamers Tavern Episode 9. We have with us Keith Baker, and we're discussing GM tips and tricks. And when we last left our heroes, they were on the adventure of describing character in DMing advice. So we were about to jump into talking about characters.
0: I'm going to tell you my number one greatest trick for making sure that your players actually remember your NPCs. It's something that I learned from Jim Butcher when it comes to writing is that every major, you don't need to do this for every single NPC that comes along, but anyone that's going to be a major reoccurring person in your game, you want to give them three traits that are unique to them. The first is always going to be something physical. Uh, for example, in the Dresden Files books, uh, Jim Butcher calls, General uh, Gentleman John Moncone always describes him in the first scene he appears in every single book he comes in, in as having eyes the color of old money he uses that phrase or some variation on it every single time. Uh, when Thomas mm-hmm. Wraith shows up, he always compares him to some type of male model. Mm-hmm. Now, using those unique identifiers, and they're used only for those characters, even if someone else has green eyes, they're not going to be described that way for anyone else. Anyone else who is a really big buff guy is not going to be described as a male model. Those phrases are attached to those characters. So mm-hmm. when you describe the... Uh, the Tavern Keeper that has the uh, pink patch over his eye, that mm-hmm. guy is going to... They're going to associate that trait with that character physically. And that's what all three of these do, is gives them a unique trait that's not going to be anything that anyone else has that immediately associates that character to them. The second one is either give them a unique voice or accent... And if you can't do that kind of thing, give them a catchphrase at least something that's a yeah. ver- uh, verbal that tells them every time. So, uh, for example, I had, uh, in one of my campaigns, a, uh, black dragon that was in disguise as a human who was a, uh, who, uh, owned the magic shop in town, the curio shop. And I gave him a Cajun accent because <laughs> black dragon swamps. Come <laughs> on, it fits. Mm-hmm. So that gave him an immediate identification. Uh, just, if just I make sure to send could... your emails to. Hey, I'm half Cajun. I'm allowed to do it. I... <laughs> <laughs> All right. I hear the you calls, a coon asses. I'm going to be pissed, but I'm allowed to say it.
2: <laughs>
0: but anyway, uh, uh, like uh, another thing I've done before was I had a uh, captain of the guard in a town. Uh, he'd always use the phrase, yeah, I'd give my last copper for whatever he <laughs> was needing at the time. I'd give my last <laughs> copper for a day off. I'd give my last copper for a good, uh, good ale, something mm-hmm. like that. It, and it gave them something, again, to anchor to that character. The third one is I give them some sort of personality trait. Uh For example, that black dragon I mentioned before was racist against elves.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, if you're doing a sci-fi campaign, you could always have uh your mysterious alien or your AI character or whatever always take every single idiom as literal. So mm-hmm. they're always interpreting uh everything you say as the literal words you're saying. And it's just some sort of Find something that gives them. I had a hacker that was obsessed with fashion. So mm-hmm, he was always mm-hmm. commenting on, us, oh, that's a great suit. Uh You're wearing that ratty old thing again. And I always describe it. And his trait was he was always wearing a uh, sharp thousand million suit. Mm-hmm. So that was, give them these personality traits and it's ways for them to get past that because... I always try to come up with great names for my characters and I do a lot of research and everything and then I say okay so you guys have here's the necromancer or whatever name that has like three levels of entomology meeting behind it and they go okay we're just going to call him Bob to keep track. <laughs> so it's a way to get around that and get these important NPCs through that barrier and into their minds and keep them there and it makes it easier for them to remember who's who and keep them straight.
2: Now I agree with all of that. Uh, I will say for me certainly with some key NPCs and this sort of comes to the question of is there something that logically suggests itself. Um, I also like having certain movements or body language for a particular NPC. You know, if I'm playing something like a goblin or a dragon or a night hag, I try to sort of shift my own posture um, Or, you know, how you hold your head or things like that, you know, to, again, just give them a physical sense of who they're actually speaking to. And certainly, yes, I can't appear like a dragon, but I can change, you know, maybe Not without chemical my, enhancement uh, head forward more, you know, again, just somehow portray, you know, do what you can to portray that character in a way that they can immediately say, oh, right, this guy.
0: Exactly, and that's what it's all about, is giving them them traits or quirks or something that are specifically for that NPC that immediately triggers in their head. Oh, hey, it's that guy that did this that one time. Yeah, I know who that is. So you're not having to explain every time.
2: With that said, you know, there's a certain degree to which you want the strongest characters like this to be characters that you do expect to use more than once. So they do get that, oh, it's that guy. Uh, Whereas on the other hand, if you get too deep with absolutely every NPC in the game, and this is the beggar who's just here to ask them for a coin and will never be seen again, uh, you can potentially sort of overwhelm people, you know, trying to keep track of every single thing.
1: I think it's also important to remember that if, you know, NPCs in the game, and and you can really get attached to them as a GM, it's very easy to do this, Um, it's also important to remember you want to avoid the Elminster Syndrome, you want to make it to where they have flaws... They are fallible and that they are not uh, sacrosanct, right? I mean, it, it's, it's important to remember that although you want to use them multiple times and you want them to be important in the game, they should never be more important than the player characters because that's probably Absolutely. one of the first steps towards deprotagonization.
0: Yeah, you don't want a gmpc you don't want a gmpc you want fully breathing characters that support the story you're trying to tell and support the characters in their actions or hinder the characters in their actions depending on that character's motivations whether they're uh, an accomplice or a villain to the players so you definitely don't want to put your own little mary sue in the game to kind of run everything for them it's the character it's the Story of the PCs. They're the main characters in this story. And you always have to keep that in mind, even when you're creating these memorable characters.
2: Yeah, and that was, of course, something that was a concrete design element in Eberron, was even with the characters, you know, the NPCs in the game world, who are more powerful than the players, all of them have limitations and reasons that they can't just solve the problems. You know, you get the most powerful cleric in the game, basically loses almost all of her power if she leaves her temple. And so, yeah, okay. she's incredibly powerful, but she can't go fight the and Sharn. You know, the most powerful druid is a tree, and he can't go anywhere because he's a tree. And, <laughs> you know, it's always good to to make sure, even because there is a point to having powerful NPCs in the game for certain stories, but it's always this question of how do you make them not overshadow you know not make the players irrelevant you also take a game like 13th age where what that does with the icons is specifically have these you know very powerful uh, characters but then every character is sort of defined by their relationship with one or more of these people uh, so it's about sort of making you you important you know, I mean, again, it's a way of sort of setting you in the world. Are you an enemy of this person? Are you their top agent? Are you, you know, their son? You know, and so again, rather than um, making you irrelevant because they're around, it's making you directly relevant because they're around. Yeah, so, I would say
1: it's, it's important to distinguish between power and importance because you can have a character, absolutely. you can have an NPC who's incredibly powerful, but he shouldn't be more important in the, you know to the to the story than the player characters that's that's really my point is
0: they can even be more important in the game world itself like you can have the the powerful king of the kingdom who it, it's a it's a mage uh ma- magitocracy i believe is the term or arcanon mm-hmm. arc- mm-hmm. anyway he's like 20th level wizard he runs everything he's very powerful but he's an important person in this world he shaped helped shape this kingdom but he's not more important than the characters in the story being told.
1: That's what I mean. Even yes. if he
0: is more important in the world. So you can have these very, very important characters in the world, just so long as they're not overshadowing the characters in the story. He's not coming along right behind them and saying, Haha, ha, we have now found this thing, now let me kill it. Okay, now I'm going to collect all the treasure and thank you very much and leave. Or well, anything, you don't want to do something like that. Keith
1: made a very good point when he said relevance is the key. You know, he says, you know, they need to be less relevant to the story than... Than the player characters and I, I agree I like that description
2: well and there's a bunch of different things that come up uh, in these examples as well is one is making sure that you don't always equate power with level as it were that you know if you take our world the general more often than not can probably get his ass kicked by the delta force commando but the general is a more powerful figure in the world That, you know, you don't have to be the best fighter to lead the army. You have to be good at leading armies. You know, leaders don't have to be necessarily tough. Now, taking the Majocracy example, well, there they do. That's sort of the point, is it's saying he has to be the best wizard. So, obviously, that means he's the best wizard. But even there, you could also say, yes, but part of what it means to be the ruler of this Majocracy is that he is personally maintaining the defensive spells of the kingdom. And if he were ever to drop that level of concentration, essentially half of his mind is always devoted to maintaining that. And if he ever dropped it, well, now the kingdom is going to suffer magical attack. And so, yes, he is innately more powerful than your players by a long shot, and that is what allows him to be the ruler But being the ruler is also what means he can't just go off to this dungeon and, you know, kill this dragon because he can't take a day off from his job. All it is to me is making sure that if you have a powerful character around the players themselves, don't feel like, so we're just doing this because he's too busy, you know, or he could be doing this he just can't be bothered you know that there is something that makes them feel like they are important even if they're not necessarily powerful
1: okay that's a good way to put it now let me ask you another question let's say we're talking about a very specific type of character in a adventure and i as from the the perspective of a gm what is important to you when you're designing the villain
0: oh i've got a lot of some The villain is one of the most important NPCs you're going to create in any long, especially if it's a long-term reoccurring villain. Absolutely. You have to, have to, have to think them through properly. You don't want the cat-stroking, maniacal, I'll get you next time, gadget, just evil for the evils guy. That's boring. That's not an evocative character. You should be able to, in my opinion, flip the story of any story you tell to the other perspective. You should be able to tell the story through the villain's eyes. And it's not going to be as good of a story because they don't have to overcome the same challenges or anything like that. But you should be able to see them as the protagonist in the story. Maybe even not the hero, but you can look through their eyes if you were looking at it from that side and see, okay, I can see why they did what they did from their point of view. Their point of view makes, they, everyone is the hero of their own story is the idea. And you have to have that villain think that they're doing, maybe, they maybe know they're doing something evil, but they think they're doing the right thing.
2: Well, I mean, that's sort of the thing to me is there's a, yeah, there's another, another way to look at that. I completely agree that, I mean, the point is villains need to make sense. You know, very few people sort of look at themselves and believe that they are evil. To me, it is about can you understand why they are doing what they are doing, even if you disagree with it. And that's certainly the case with Eberron, is you have a lot of people who, again, are are certainly evil, but but we always want them to make sense. You want to see how a person could have this belief, even if they disagree with you. Again, to me, going back to making a compelling, a compelling villain is them just having, again, a, a concrete role in the world. You know, what are, why do you not want them to do whatever it is they want to do? You know, what are going to be the consequences if they succeed and why does that personally matter to you? Um, so, you know, just making sure that the players feel they have some sort of personal stake in what's going on and that this isn't something where if they just say, well, this isn't our problem and walk away that, uh, you know, yeah, that doesn't matter. You know I mean? Again, if this bandit King is going to slaughter everyone in this village, why do they care about this village? You know, what is it that makes them actually the, the bandit for whatever reason, as you said, may see himself as the hero. Why do the players see him as the villain?
1: You know, what is it that makes
2: it, Uh, personal to them.
1: Now, I I like to say that there's a a really wide variety of different types of villains you can bring into a game, but I think for shorthand, if I was just going to tell somebody, like, you know, for some GMing advice, I would say you should probably narrow it down to two things. And those two things are one of them being what Daryl was suggesting, which is the sympathetic or tragic or relatable bad guy. But the other one Mm -hmm. is the unrelenting force. You can have a villain that is basically just, I am going to crush the world because I'm going to crush the world. Because reasons. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and as mm-hmm. long as, as long as it's something that they just, it's kind of like the Terminator. You know, you can't reason with it. You can't, uh, bargain with it. It can only be opposed. And there is a, it will there is never a place... ever stop until you are dead. Exactly. And there's, there's a good place for that.
2: And there's a middle ground in there, too, of what we've got here is I completely agree with you. And, you know, and there is a place for this is just the, the evil that will oversweep the world or oversweep the village or whatever it is, you know, or the Lovecraftian, we cannot understand this. You know, it is beyond us, but it will destroy us. So, you know, on the one hand, you have the hero who you can see there or the villain who you can see their tragic story. On the other, you have the vast, you know, unstoppable, un, uh, you know, force that cannot be understood. In the middle, I mean, there's also room for the sociopath. Oh, and, yeah. there's. Know, I mean, there's a, all kinds themselves. of different ones. Oh, sure. But all I was saying is that speaking to the sociopath is the person who it's not that their story is particularly tragic or whatever. But you can just see that they are a person who, you know, just doesn't give a damn about anyone else and will take what they want. Um, And as you say, there's many, many, many other sort of different types. But I'm just saying, going back to the bandit, you could say, okay, the bandit really needs this money because these people fought his, you know, took the land away from his family. And you could do that, or you could just, again, present this bandit as clearly someone who is uh, just basically... He is motivated by greed, and he doesn't care who he hurts to get what he wants. And so all I'm saying is that mm – go on.
0: Even in those cases, though, if you looked at it through the bandit's point of view, the actions, the logic is still there. The things he's doing still make sense. It's I need money. These people have money. And they may even have an entire moral system in their head that's completely different than ours. It's these people are weak. Why do these weak people have money when I'm strong? I'm going but to that's all I'm saying is that
2: there's the two different ways to take it there. Generally speaking, I entirely agree with you. I mean, that's one of the core points of the Blood of All uh, in Eberron is that yes, this is the necromantic religion and it is technically an evil force, but it is actually a force that you can clearly see why people would follow this religion and why it makes sense to them. Uh, you know, so again, you could have the bandit saying. What I am doing is testing these people. If they're not strong enough to oppose me, then, you know, I am going to make them stronger. I mean, there's all sorts of stories you could do. And I'm saying quite often that does make the story more compelling. But I'm saying especially if that's usually what it is, sometimes there is the place for the person who, as I said, is simply a sociopath and is simply killing people because he can and to him that's reason enough. I mean, I'm just saying I don't use that sort of thing very often. Uh, but sometimes for that very reason, having the person who, uh, you know, basically again, it's the, they want money, you have it, and why shouldn't I tell you to get it? Uh, and you know, can th- be an interesting lot, difference. Mm-hmm.
0: And this is a psychology thing. Any, any person, even, even a complete sociopath, uh, if you get into schizophrenic psycho- uh, psychopath, there's a little bit more going on. But even a complete sociopath is going to rationalize what they're doing as the right thing to do, even if Fair it enough. is completely amoral. That, that, that's the point I'm making. Now, if you're talking about <gasps> well, unknowable things beyond the stars, yes, no, they no, have no, logical no, actually, reasons for I'm, what they're doing, not. too. We just have absolutely well, no way of comprehending about what they're doing, things. and that's the horror. So.
2: See, I think we're talking two different points here. Uh, Because my point is, yes, no one is just, I think I am evil. You know, everyone is the hero of their own story. And we completely agree on that. Uh, What I'm saying is, it's the question whether to the player, there is an element of sympathy to this character. Or whether, despite the fact that the character has a reason, to the player, they are a monster. And I'm saying sometimes there is a value to having a monster, Uh, Even though, again, I'm saying this is the person who Eberron, more often than not, doesn't. You know, Eberron, generally speaking, you know, again, you take Droam, and the whole point is to say monsters aren't monsters. But I'm saying that for that very reason, you know, if you take, let's say, orcs in Lord of the Rings, and of course in Eberron, one of the whole points is to say that goblins and orcs aren't monsters. They have their own cultures, they have their own uh, reasons uh, for wanting to fight people and such, but sometimes you do want the thing where you say, this is a creature that was bred to kill people, and that is its only purpose, and uh, you know, there is nothing redeeming about it. And that sort of comes back to the Terminator.
0: You can't negotiate
2: with
1: a zombie apocalypse.
2: Exactly. And all I'm saying
1: is that <laughs> but even they um, have
0: goals that they think are right. It's zombies don't have brains. any goals. They're zombies. I want to eat your brains. That's, That's their goal. Mm-hmm. That's their motivation. The, and it makes perfect right. sense to them because you have brains. Right, but from the relevance
1: from the point of relevance to a player character in a campaign, <laughs> there is no relevance
0: to that motivation. Well, I I'm just saying this is this is something that as a GM you want to keep
2: in mind. We all agree that a villain needs motivation. The question is they don't always need tragic motivation.
0: Yes. And And it's it's just something they, I'm sorry I keep coming about this, but even if it's something, the players may not even ever see it, but it's something that you should really think about as a GM in order to make these characters come more alive in the setting. Even if it's something that the players never even see, if they don't even know why this person's doing what they're doing, you should know it so you can more effectively portray that character to the players, in my my opinion.
1: Let's be clear, let's be very clear, your mileage may vary and we're just... You know, we're giving our opinions on these things. We're not saying there's only one true way to run your game. I am. (laughs) Well, okay, aside from Daryl. Maybe Daryl is saying there's only one true way. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. kidding. (laughs) But the point is, is that there's a lot of different ways to do it.
2: I think a key point is, you know, regardless of getting into the psychology of the individual, you always want to at least know what is the motivation for the villain. What are they trying to accomplish and why is that worth doing? you know even if you don't get into their greater deeper story beyond that again can the be bandit wants to kill simple. destroy this village why you know can what is it be extremely simple it can
0: be just a mm-hmm. very basic i want to rule i want to rule the world right. why do i want to rule the world because, because reasons I can. because reasons because i can
2: <laughs> well what i'm saying is turn it around a different way and say there is a bandit threatening this village Uh, We don't need to know why the bandit needs his money and why he thinks he's the hero for taking it from these people. But one of the questions is, why does this village have money? You know, what is it he wants to take? Where's that come from? Right. You know, so just again, building the story, you can say, well, they have, uh, you know, gold because it's tax time and they are getting ready to deliver that gold to the tax man. And if they take it, now you know that's going to have consequences for the villagers, and so on and so on and so on. I'm just saying that even there, it's a matter of rather than just saying, "Well, he's random bandit." Well, why? What's he? You know, why is a banditry effective in this place? Why are there band? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there's all sorts of different ways you could take this. But and certainly you just gave us a perfect segue,
0: Keith, into mm-hmm. something else I wanted to talk about when it comes to how to improve your regimen, which is talking about the setting itself, what you can do to make the world come more alive beyond just the characters that inhabit it. Yeah, and oh, we're not certainly. talking
1: about world building. We're talking about you as the DM sort of bringing an existing setting to life.
2: Absolutely. And do you just want to dive in or do you have a specific point to start on?
0: Well, I was just uh, I was just wanting to, like I said, you gave us the perfect segue for that one. I just <laughs> wait, wait. wanted to talk more about uh, the setting, how how you would make the world feel like it's alive. Not necessarily in how you're crafting the world or building the world, but how you as a GM are presenting it to the players, so that the players can see that this is a living I world.
2: I mean, again, a, a core point comes to all of these different things that we've already touched on is saying how does it matter to the players? How do they perceive it? One of the things I always tell people when it comes to world building, but it can apply in the small form as well, is you know people always say, "Well, how much is too much? How much detail is more than what 's needed? How much should I develop history for example?" And the point to me it comes back to you know rules of threes we were already saying uh, three details about a character back earlier is for any random given thing that you've come up with, can you think of three ways that it could actually be used in a story in some way? You know, if you're coming up with history, why does that history matter? So there was a big battle. How is that battle ever going to have an impact on your campaign? And so if you have a village, you know, well, think about what has happened there. What is some event that, you know, why is there a village here in the first place? because generally speaking, if you have a thriving community, there's something that helps it succeed. It's a port, it's near particularly fertile uh fields, it's near a mine, you know, so okay, boom, there we go, it's near a mine, so there's a whole gold rush thing going on, and you've got people who are coming in uh looking for a claim. I mean, you know, if you just sort of start grabbing little details like that, so it's not just a town, it's, you know, a mining community or it's a lumber community and just a few details like that. Well, it's a lumber community, so there's going to be a mill and there's going to be lumberjacks. And, you know, you immediately start getting something to work with that lets players, among other things, realize how this town is different from every other town and immediately give you a few ideas of some color you can add to NPCs as you start having them pop up.
0: And and one thing you're saying is something that kind of goes back to what I was saying about the characters again, which is it doesn't necessarily have to tie in or anything, but it has to make sense. Absolutely. You have to present the players in a way that it makes sense that they can see the reason they can, if they want to put in the effort to research it and find out, they can see the why this village is where it is. It's on a crossroads between these two rivers. Uh, these two major roads happen to meet in this one place, so a village sprung up around the tavern hall or whatever. Uh, why is this starship in this sector? Because there's uh, unobtainium ore on the planet. There, right. There's a, There's a reason for the things to be there. It has to make sense. And the same thing goes even when you're going into a dungeon. Why is the dungeon here?
1: Well, my advice on this subject is going to revolve mostly around reading. I'm going to say Mm -hmm. if you are a GM and you want to really make the setting feel unique and alive, make sure you read everything there is to know about a setting. If it's already an established one, if it's a setting of your own creation, read what you've written about it. You know, get that, Mm -hmm. get that information in front of you. And then once you've done that, once you've gotten your, your mind kind of wrapped around it, pick out the things that you feel are the most interesting and unique that can apply to the adventure. And mm-hmm. once you've gotten that sort of list, and I think Keith has got to get an excellent point, you know, go with the rule of three. If you, can't think, if you, can, if you can find at least three unique things that you really like, mm-hmm. find a way to bring those out during the adventure. And that can be anything like, if I'm running Traveler, and I want people to understand that the Zodani are the psionic near-human alien race, then I'm mm-hmm. going to make sure that you run into a Zodani at one point and say, oh, well, this is Traveler, we're meeting Zodani. Or we're dealing with, you know, uh, Mason cannons on the, the rim of Deneb. Or, you know, you find things that, that are unique to that setting and you bring them out and play. And, uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's really where I would come from is just, just read, 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 find the unique bits. And then, you know, it, it, this comes also back to Keith saying, you know, your group, find the things that they are going to appreciate the most probably as well.
2: Well, I think you bring up an interesting point there as well, which ties back to some of the other things we've said about NPCs and villains and uh, things like that, which is, okay, the Zodani, uh, and what makes them different? What makes them interesting? Well, they've incorporated psionics into their culture. So in the encounter that you are going to have with them, how will you perceive that? You know, how is that going to, how will it be different from an encounter with a different human culture. You know, and so again, uh, you know, whether you have them reading your thoughts or whether you have them communicating with one another telepathically, so they just uh, never speak aloud, but always just glance at each other and then talk to you. You know, sort of finding little things like that, that again, make this feel different. Then, because you're dealing with right. a Medusa or you're dealing with a dwarf, you know. It, um. it doesn't
1: have to be a huge encounter. It doesn't even have to be the focus of the adventure. But if it is a prominent piece yeah, that they remember, then you have communicated part of what you love about the setting to your players.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, this actually comes up to something I would say. It just makes me think of it right there with what you were describing with Traveler and saying, okay, let's find a couple little things that really get the flavor across and they don't have to be major things is, um, and coming back to our previous discussion about giving the players a certain amount of narrative control. One of the things that I wrote about a few months ago Uh, But that interests me that I've been playing around with is in dealing with travel, uh, essentially doing travel by sort of montage, if you will. Because you always get that sort of issue of we're trying to get from point A to point B. The journey should be exciting. We're going through Markwood. You know, this should be scary. But how do you do that without sort of just devolving into a random encounter that doesn't really have anything to do with anything and that you don't really want to waste the time on what I like to do in that sort of situation is essentially present each character with some situation that happens along the way and basically ask them how they resolve that situation. So, you know, saying, okay, well, when you get boarded by Zudani, uh, customs officials, yo smuggler, how do you talk your way out of this <laughs> and you know when Excellent. when you're you're you know you have to decide if you're gonna go through the asteroid field pilot how do you you know how do you work your way through you know basically, even down to just saying at the end, okay, you know dwarf, what's the scariest thing you saw in this forest? what's the one thing that really actually did frighten you or even just well, what's the terrible dream you had last night you know, but something. That basically gives each character just a small little spotlight moment. And the point is, we're not trying to waste a lot of time. We're only going to, this is only going to take us eight minutes. And we're just going to take a minute or two with each character. But that helps give a sense that, oh, this journey did actually take a while. A bunch of things happened. But we're just sort of cruising through and, you know, but highlighting what it meant to you. That one moment when you did something special.
1: I'm a huge that's fan a, of that kind of idea. montage. I really love just sort of going around the table and saying, "What did you know? What did you do? And what did you do?" And, and the mm-hmm. idea of like the the bad dream you had last night. I'm probably gonna steal that for my next accursed adventure because that's pretty cool. Yeah, that
0: that's a that's a great solution to a problem that's existed for a while, which is the like you said, rolling on random encounters. It's like, okay, you're going through the forest. This night's uneventful. This night's uneventful. This night's uneventful. Okay, uh, it, fourth night out, then uh, an albear comes out and attacks you, and it's that's that's filler stuff, and it can be good if you use it right, or if that's the kind of campaign you're running, where it is about the travel and the exploration. But the way you're describing it is really good for a more story-focused game, where it lets you get all those moments in without getting down into that mundane. Okay mechanics are right up front yeah. on this, you know this is the random encounter, let's just kill it and get the XP.
2: Yeah, I mean, the key here is that, yeah, if the journey is the adventure, and there's a lot of times when it is, well then that's a whole different story. But when the point is here is, no, no, the adventure's the dungeon, but we just want you to feel like it took something to get there, like it was a significant, you know, journey. Let's just highlight a couple interesting scenes, and you know, again, we're gonna say, oh, you run into some bandits on the second day, hey, Rogue. How do you get the group by them? And it could be that he decides, oh, well, I spot them far ahead and we just, you know, uh, because I'm an excellent scout and we just work our way around them. Or it could be that he says, oh, it turns out I know these bandits. You know, we used to go to the Thieves Guild together. And now we have a little detail that we'll use in the story later. And, you know, but it's back to narrative control. It's back to giving the players a little chance to, to throw out little things like that.
1: No, and it's so. great advice. I really I really like that. Um my first instinct was to say, well, you travel by Star Wars wipe or you yeah. travel by map, Indiana Jones style, where we just see the plane yep. and the little red line. Um and, and those those can be fine. Uh there's especially moments Absolutely. in Feng Shui where that will be totally fine. Uh <laughs> but uh you can you can also, you know, turn it into a an opportunity, like you just said, an opportunity for let the players be a little more creative. And I like that. That that gives that's a. I think that's an excellent tool. It's certainly one of the best tools I've heard that I did wasn't already aware of uh, tonight. So I think uh, this this podcast, uh, if nothing else, has <laughs> taught me at least one new trick. So
2: okay, well I'm glad I I was able to to you know throw in one useful thing. I I wrote about that in a little more detail on uh, Keith-Baker.com uh, a few months back, but. Uh, but yeah, it's something that, as I said, I've been playing with for for the last year and really really enjoy. So
1: no, it sounds and it's like a good really compromise
2: in a game. Uh, yeah, it's a good compromise in a game too. That often is more mechanic heavy. Uh, that you know, sort of, this is a place where you can give the players a little, you know, a little chance to play with the narrative.
1: Speaking of so. mechanics, I think that's an excellent segue mm-hmm. into talking about combat.
2: Because, Smooth
1: segue. Ooh. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. I am proud of that one. But any adventure in a role-playing game, and, and I'm, not, I, I'm generalizing here because there are certain role-playing games where this is sure, But, but in general, any adventure in a role-playing game is going to involve a certain amount of action and or combat. So mm-hmm. what are some tips and tricks that we can talk about for DMs to keep these action scenes, these combat scenes, fresh and engaging?
0: I've got one that I love to use for anything that's where the combat system is nice and crunchy. There's a lot going on there, like, uh, the later editions of D&D and Pathfinder and Shadowrun and games like that is mm-hmm. I love using 3D. I love using minis in a grid, first off. The second thing is, I love using 3D terrain, especially in Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition, because it adds a whole new layer to it. Especially, love using the terrain as kind of almost a character itself in the combat, where, okay, there's a pool of lava. Okay, there's an electrical box that you might throw an enemy into. Uh, there's a fireplace you might shove an enemy into. Especially, especially like I said, 4th Edition, where you, there's a lot of pushing and pulling, but the biggest thing I love to do is it really makes the battle pop is 3D terrain. I use, uh, dungeon tiles a lot. Um, I also just recently, mm-hmm. I haven't had a chance to unbox it yet, but I got those, uh, Dwarven Forge tiles from their, mm-hmm. their Kickstarter. And one thing I love to do with my old, like D and D dungeons and tiles from Wizards of the Coast, the cardboard ones is I went to the craft store and for like, a pop. I bought all these little cubes that are like one-inch cubes on each side, two-inch cubes on each side. And I painted them black, matte black, so they would kind of fade into the background a little bit. And I would put one down and then set the tile on top of it so that the minis could go up the stairs to the platform. And they can push someone off or they can climb up the mountain or go up this to have their swashbuckling fight on the staircase and actually see the transition in altitude so they can visualize a lot better if this is a two inch fall that's 10 feet on the scale really easy Mm -hmm. to figure out the damage you're not having them all the time how 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 big was that how tall is that ledge again how high is how deep is that hole it's right there on the on the screen they can see it it's a lot faster and it speed things up and like i said it's it pops visually
1: and I'm not going to disagree with you completely, Daryl, because you're right. Terrain is cool and I love using it. But at the mm-hmm. same point, same time, I think it's important to point out that certain games just do better with allowing the players, like we've been talking about earlier, to have a little more narrative control over the area that surrounds them. And a good example for this is Feng Shui, which actually discourages mm-hmm. you very strongly from using any kinds of maps or terrain because then it's limiting what the players can decide is nearby for their stunts. Like, in Feng Shui, well, if I want to play I... a guy who blows up uh, a fire extinguisher, I can just say, well, I pull a fire extinguisher off the wall and I don't have to point out to you exactly where that is on the map. I can just say, I am standing next to a fire extinguisher and therefore I pull it off the wall and throw it at a bad guy and shoot it and it blows up.
2: Well,
0: yeah, It varies by game system. Which yeah, And there's also a, a
2: definite uh, halfway between those is um you know, between the just encouraging players to come up with anything they can think of, uh, which works very well for players that are creative, but sometimes players off the top of their head don't think of the fact that there's probably a fireplace in the, the end that they could shove someone into. Uh, back to the, the other direction of having it fully mapped out is, you know, in between, uh, one thing I like to do a lot is to give the players a list of things that are, uh, in the scene. That's and not nice. say where they are or not say whatever, but just, for example, saying, yeah, well, in the uh, the tavern, we have a roaring fireplace. We have a plate glass window uh, and, you know, we have a, a wall full
0: of A wall full of combustible alcohols. And
2: that is not saying these are the only things there. You know, if you can think of something else like, well, is there a wall full of drinks? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, there is. But, you know, giving them a couple concrete things that they know if we use these things, you know, we can use them for an interesting effect. You're giving them a starting point. Right, exactly. It's just, again, I found that works really well for players who wouldn't think to just make something up on the spot. But once you say there's a roaring fireplace, they do start thinking, "Oh, oh, what can I do with that? And I'm going to back up a step. I'm actually going
1: to, I'm actually going to talk about what Daryl said with the terrain because it is a really cool idea. And I'm just going to throw out Mm -hmm. a tip that I've learned as a GM for making a fight really engaging is to actually have some dynamic terrain. And what I mean by that is you have a situation that is actually going to change the terrain of the fight as you're going along. A good example is if Daryl, Daryl is saying, well, there's a lava flow. Okay. And the first thing I was thinking, well, okay, that's going to get bigger. That's going to escalate. So the fight is going to actually get more and more confined the longer it goes on to maybe these little islands or something. And that will really add a cool elements of action that isn't necessarily another enemy to fight. It's just another impact on the game that gives the player characters more to do, more to riff off of, and more opportunities to kind of showcase some of their unique abilities.
0: And it's also a way to oh, yeah, so. make every single fight feel a little bit more unique, because how many times are you going to go into a thirty by thirty room and kill whatever monsters in there and go to the next one? If you add these sort of little things to each combat and swap them up, change them out, it really keeps every single encounter a little bit more fresh.
2: No, I, I agree completely, and that's sort of what it's about—is just how are you making it interesting, especially if it is essentially a fight they've done many times before. You know, how does this one different? Uh, and yeah, and I, I definitely like using dynamic sort of terrain effects whenever it's possible. Um, so yeah, I agree with that.
0: Another thing that I really like to do is, and again, I'm going back to, uh, the games that I play the most, which is D and D and Shadowrun, but especially mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. uh, D and D Pathfinder third edition, uh, even earlier editions, you can pull the same thing. If you have anything that has like a recharge ability, uh, like Dragon's Breath, for example. You at, at, According to the rules, at the start of your turn, you roll a d6. If it comes up, say, like, 5 or 6, they get their breath weapon back. I never right. do that at the start of that Dragon's turn. I always do it at the end of their turn. So it'd be something like, okay, he did his claw-claw bite. And then I roll the recharge. And then I will describe it in a way that kind of evokes the scene to them and clues them in into, oh, crap, this guy's about to breathe again. Like, okay, cl- okay, he claws and claws and bites and this damage, blah, blah. I roll my recharge, the breath weapon recharge. Okay, you see flames from between the red dragon's sharp teeth and smoke coming from his nostrils. Your turn. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> so now they
0: have a little bit of an idea and it it's a way to telegraph what might happen next and let them do some sort of uh planning or prepping instead of wondering okay well his breath and weapon might che- recharge right. in the next round so it might, it, it, it gives them right. a little bit more interaction with the scene as well because it's like okay we we have an idea of what's probably going to happen he's probably going to breathe fire on us next turn so we need to react to that and then you can always flip it on him and say no I'm going to hold it off for the next turn because the dragon's smart enough to know they prepped too well it's not going to be very effective so He's going to fly over here and then tail whip them. And then the next turn he's going to breathe on them
2: or something. But it's a way to... Well, that that sort of touches on the other point of just generally giving players feedback through story rather than just, uh, you know, concrete. He's got 10 hit points left is, again, the fighter rolls an 18. He hits the guy for 12 hit points rather than just being like, okay, he's hurt, or, oh, he has, you know, 12 hit points left, you know, do you describe that as, oh, well, you know, the Death Knight just easily uh, knocks your blade aside with his shield, uh, which may be a hit, but, you know, he's still doing fine, or is it, oh, you, you know, your blade digs deep into his arm, but uh, he grits his teeth and keeps going, you know what I mean? Basically giving them an indication of, well, they know how much damage they did, but how did that impact the guy? You know, is he I, clearly hurt by it? Was it significant, or is it just oh, he's not even you know uh, that doesn't even bother him?
1: I want to make a quick point here too. You've you've got an excellent uh, uh, discussion here about you know describing the effects of the blows, and rather than just sort of you know I roll, I hit, I do this much damage and and the only thing i want to point out here is again it kind of goes back to um tone and and basically empowering and protagonizing your players it's very easy as a gm to to describe things in a way that makes the player characters look stupid especially on mm-hmm. things like critical fumbles and i just want to encourage mm-hmm. dms out there to not do that <laughs> uh i would instead recommend well i'll that. actually uh I would instead mm-hmm. recommend that you, you try and describe the things that the players do as looking cool and being cool for the most part. Again, you, you, this is going to change depending on your group and depending on if that they find that thing, that kind of thing, uh, really funny or not. But in my experience, most of the time, Whoa. player characters want to be cool and you can mm-hmm. turn even a critical fumble into a moment where the villain just sort of says a one liner or, or threatens their family or, you know, just gets a, 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 a chance to gloat. But it doesn't have to make the player characters well, look
0: stupid, and that's
2: all I'm saying I actually with that, like but... to uh, take that I like to well, take this... that in a a different direction, which is to actually a lot of times when a fumble comes up in my game, I'll actually ask the player to describe it and you know basically say, how did this how did you fail here? What went wrong? And so the point is they know they failed, they know they failed badly. But how did they see that happening? What would their character have done that would have caused this to go out, you know, go terribly wrong? And so it doesn't let them escape the consequences of the failure, but it lets them try and praise it in a way that makes sense to them that it could have happened to their character.
0: And in my games, for the tone of the games that I run, and again, Mm -hmm. your mileage may vary a lot on this one, but... I think it's okay to describe what happens with their fumble as long as, A, like Ross was saying, you don't make them look too stupid. This isn't the Three Stooges, Mm -hmm, unless mm -hmm. you're playing Paranoia, of course, then yes, it is. But Hmm. on the other hand, I always do my best to make them look cool, but I don't shy away from those moments to add a little bit of levity to it. Because I think that sometimes that can be fun to add that into the game. But again, that's the tone of the games that I run. If you're running something that's really serious and grimdark, yeah, you probably don't want that in your game because you want your characters to look badass.
2: So, I mean, an example that uh, that comes up in a game I just ran at a convention a little while ago was these people were going through a secret tunnel uh, into a building, and the uh, wizard gets a critical failure casting a fireball. And I ask him... How's that go wrong? What happened? And he says, well, I guess I probably set the tunnel on fire. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's exactly what you do. And so they got away and that was fine. But then later they actually get out of the building. And it's like, yeah, you're not going through that tunnel because you set it on fire. And part of the point of it to me is that if I just told him you set the tunnel on fire, he might you know, feel like I wouldn't have done that. But because, you know, I I said, well, you tell me what you did that was terribly wrong. You know, again, like I said, the player has to be on the page with the fact that this is a terrible failure. Something has gone wrong. But, you know, there's room for you to at least throw out what you think it could be. And again, if the player's just like, nothing happened at all, I'd say, well, no. You know, if you don't think of something, I will. I'm just giving you a <laughs> chance to push the direction. One of my favorite ones actually was... Uh, kind of an obscure little adventure, but for reasons. Uh, the player in this case was a floating head. He was a flame skull. And was uh, he morning? He decides to uh <laughs> he wasn't, but I mean, you know, exactly. It's it, that that's his character, you know? And uh it was the undead A team, if you will, uh in a Carnath oh, wow. campaign in uh uh Eberon. And so he's a flame skull, and these people, they've basically been framed. The guards are sort of coming in to the room, and he says, Well, I'm going to stay in this room to try to find out what they know. What, why are they chasing us? And so he says, He's just going to hide on the mantelpiece. You know, he's a skull. He's just going to sit on the mantelpiece. And he rolls a one for his hide. I'm like, Yeah, it's a pretty easy hide. You're small, you know, so go ahead and give me a stealth check. And he rolls a one. And I'm like, Okay. What went wrong? He thinks about it and he's like, "Mm," and finally says, it's the Scooby-Doo thing. You know, they walk into the room and they're walking along and I'm sitting there in the mantelpiece and as they walk across the room, I just turn and follow their movement and (laughs) they all see me. (laughs) And, And again, like I said, I could have done something bad to him, but it was because he was a participant in that, even though it ended up being bad he at least got to have the story make sense in his mind as to how could his character have screwed this up. That's a really good point. That's a really good point.
1: Well, on the subject subject of combat, I'm going to throw out something I think is really important as a DM. I'm going to say, for me, I think one of the most crucial things about running combats is pacing. I want to make sure that that combat doesn't drag on forever. I want to make sure that it doesn't... Agreed completely. you know, it it can end you know abruptly. It is, it is not. Um, I am I am okay with the player characters like absolutely curb stomping my bad guys from time to time. So it, if it ends shortly, I'm I'm actually okay with that uh, most of the time. But uh, I think it's really important as a GM to keep in mind the pacing of your game and not to let the combat totally derail it, but instead support and escalate that pacing and get it to the right place.
2: Well, and I think that's also a matter of being sensitive to the scenario because things can can turn out differently than you thought you thought this was going to be a really challenging interesting fight and it's just not turning out that way you know there's a whole conversation to be had of do you fudge rolls do you change stats on the fly uh but one of the things i'd certainly say is that don't be afraid if you've reached a point where the combat just isn't interesting and people just aren't having fun to summarize the ending You know, that fine, the dragon still has 100 hit points, but it's clear, yeah, it's clear you're going to beat him. You know, let's let's summarize it in a short form, however you want to do that.
0: But yeah. I'm a very big fan of something that I haven't seen a lot of other, at least in my area, I haven't Mm -hmm. seen a lot of other DMs or GMs do. I've got no problem with the bad guys running away or surrendering when it looks like they're obviously going to lose this fight because... Most kobolds and goblins and thieves and low rent security guards aren't going to stand there and fight to the death when they're obviously outmatched. They're either going to try to lay down something to get, they're going to do something as a distraction so they can run away or they're just going to flat out flee or they're going to immediately surrender and beg for their life. And that's a great way to kind of just, okay, It's you guys have overcome any sort of challenge this presents. It's now mopping up. Instead of spending another half an hour going through sure. the motions of doing the dice rolls, and I might ship another couple of hit points off of you, these guys throw in the towel, and they either run well. or they surrender. And then usually when they run, they say, well, we're not going to let them get away. And it's like, okay, well, you mm-hmm. shoot your arrows or you open up an auto fire and you take them out. Mm-hmm. We talked earlier
1: about, you know, finding a good place to set your game and set your combat, and I think there's some great internet resources for you on that you can actually look for, um, I know I searched for it with uh, Feng Shui um, 101 mm-hmm. places to have a gunfight, and 101 places to have a sword fight, and 101 places to have a mm-hmm. fist fight, and just if you google search <laughs> for things like that uh, you will probably find some really good especially for modern games, you will find some really good inspirations to find really unique and interesting locations to have a battle in your game.
0: I love tables. I love <laughs> tables. I, I I love random tables because that's how most of them are presented, but I almost never use them randomly, at least not in a roll of the dice and this is what I'm forced to use. But I just love having prepped in advance a bunch of names. Um When I ran a Shadowrun 2nd edition game back when I was a kid, I had like an index card box full of just NPCs organized with those little... Uh, note, flip cards where you could just flip to, okay, I need a fixer, flip to F, okay, no, 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 yes. And I had a bunch of, or just, I have, I usually keep like all sorts of little lists either on my phone or in, in my bag so I can just reach out and grab it real quick. So like, I've got a list of like, I think I'm up to 250 now of just random crap that the players can find in a D&D mm-hmm. game or a Pathfinder game or any sort of fantasy game where, yeah, mm-hmm. you're looking for treasure, but here's some other stuff that's in the room. And that gives them something. That's like, oh, there's a glass jar there. That's a glass vase there. Okay, I'm going to take that glass vase and and put it in my sack and crunch it up. Now I've got to, got a bunch of glass dust I can use for something later on, maybe. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's uh, I, I just love those tables because it's a quick, easy way to allow you to pull, basically pull something out of your ass if you need to.
2: <laughs> I just want to touch back on on combat for one more moment. Just to the point we were making is. You said, Daryl, about the, uh, you know, well, we could keep this going and I could chip a couple of hit points off of you or we could, you know, move on. You know, one other possibility there is essentially to offer the players a deal. Is to say, tell you what, if between you, you lose 15 more hit points, you can call it here. And, you know, essentially to summarize it so, uh, so it's a choice to them. If they think, no, no, we can do better than that you know, we do want to fight this out and fight it to the bloody finish, Uh, then they can. But as long as someone's willing to take 15 hit points, let's move on. You know, so just a a possibility to consider is essentially a deal.
1: Yeah, I think as long as the player characters don't feel like they're trapped and they're forced to sit there through lots of... Because the dice can just come up with some really bad runs of luck where nobody
2: hits anything and it can kind of drag on. Um, and, and the mm-hmm. trick to, so, and the trick to it is is mm-hmm.
0: if the play if the players are still having fun, yeah. let them
2: have fun. Right. That's what I was saying is giving them a choice. You know, yeah. do you want to end it here or do you want to keep see this through? And if they want to see it through, well then fine. You know, if they're enjoying it, then that's that's sort of the point is it's all about are the players having fun.
0: Well, we're about getting close to last call here, but I just wanted to ask was there I've got a, I've got one or two other things I wanted to bring up, but I just wanted to go for like a general miscellaneous Mm -hmm. category for any other advice. Sure. Uh, One thing I would like to point out is that in my experience, players are very much monkey see, monkey do. Mm -hmm. I had an issue with my Shadowrun players where they thought they were in the old west in every single gunfight they had they would stand out in the middle of the open and just shoot until everything <laughs> was dead which is there's a lot of rules built into Shadowrun to discourage that zigzagging running and taking cover mm-hmm. and they just wouldn't mm-hmm. do it so one time i put them up against these wing security guards that were obviously not a match for this team and so i'm like okay i'm going to show you what happens when why you should be doing this and i had these little runty things run and take cover Mm -hmm. and the players immediately within one turn noticed all the penalties they were getting to hit that the npcs were not Mm -hmm. and within the next turn they were taking cover they were doing zigzags. they were throwing smoke grenades they were they were they were doing it so if there's something that you kind of want the players to do but you don't want to just go, hey guys, you know if you do this it'd be better for you overall, because you don't want to dictate their actions to them, but if you show them the effectiveness of something they'll do it. That's not a bad technique, Daryl. Yeah,
2: yeah, no, that makes perfect sense.
0: I had one other little tip I wanted to drop in. Uh Uh, As a DM, if you need a break to think for a moment, I'm going to tell you right now your best thing ever in a D and d game. You enter a room (laughs) that's 25 feet by 25 feet directly across the door from the door you just opened is another door. Each Mm -hmm. tile is a different colored stone in a checkerboard pattern. What do you do? You've just bought yourself Mm -hmm. 10 minutes minimum where they (laughs) will be looking for that trap because they know it's there. Now, that only works once or twice.
2: (laughs) One interesting thing to flip around on that uh, that I'll just know from the Dread campaign, I was in one thing they did uh, there was actually set a timer on player discussion. Because there, what they concretely wanted was to give the sense that this is an action movie, if you will. And so they would present a situation like that and say, essentially, the walls are closing in. Okay, you have, you know, take two minutes to figure out what you're about to do. Just because, as you said, well, players could spend 20 minutes discussing how they want to approach this. Oh, I bought myself 45 minutes one time doing that trick. Yeah, and I'm just saying, if if you specifically want a mood of pressure, which again, most games you don't, but if you do, you know, that's one thing to do, is to actually let the players know, and you know, basically, if the timer runs out, then the walls are crushing you, you know, sort of thing. Um, So, you know, just a thing to think about. Overall, I think my whole thing, walking away from from this, you know, is just the whole know your players, work with your players. You know, this isn't something that's about you doing it alone. It's about you all having a good time together. And uh, whether that's just you understanding what your players enjoy or whether that's you actively involving your players in the narrative. You know, to me, the thing about being a good game master is make sure you are working with your players instead of against them.
1: And that's a good point. I'm going to jump on the bandwagon of one last thing. (laughs) Uh, For me, one last thing I would say to GMs, and this is a lesson that I learned uh, definitely uh, from a very good group of role players, is sometimes the Mm -hmm. best thing you can do as a GM is shut up and sit back. And Mm -hmm. what that means is there's often going to be times, if you have a really good group and they really like role playing and they want to sort of discuss things... Uh, they want to plan their upcoming Shadowrun or if they want to try and hash out who the real bad guy is mm-hmm. or they want to figure out what the end of the mystery is, sometimes the best thing you can do as a GM is just let them talk. You don't need to always be involved. You don't need to always rush things ahead. If you feel like they're all having a mm-hmm. good time Absolutely. and this is what they came to do is to role play and be in character and if you feel like that's really something that they're getting a lot out of, just talking to each other let it happen. Don't be afraid to just be quiet for a while.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, I, despite having mentioned that timer thing, which I just mentioned as a sort of random interesting thing that came up,
1: and generally, it is
2: I completely agree. You know, the point is if the players are enjoying themselves, let them go. And one other thing I'll just bounce off of, of that is I had a game master once who basically always felt that he had to make things difficult. And by that I mean okay, we're just trying to break a guy out of uh, essentially local county jail and we're expert thieves and we come up with a great plan, you don't necessarily have to make it, oh, but what do you know? The Royal Guard happened to be stopping in. You know, you don't have to throw in a thing. Sometimes it is good to let the players, if they come up with a great plan, let them feel like they're awesome, like that was a brilliant plan. It works. You know, if you see what I'm saying, you don't always have to uh, be trying to trip them up or challenge them. You know, sometimes it's, it's okay to let the players, you know, uh, succeed if they're, if they're being smart about what they're doing, let them enjoy that.
0: And there's a flip side to that where if you're playing, if you have an NPC that's obviously going to be smarter and more brilliant and more thorough in their planning than you are, like if you have uh yep. ancient dragon or a lich or something like that, do sure. you not feel any problems whatsoever if the pcs do something that pulls something that you could not have foreseen that just completely disrupts their plans feel free to take a moment say okay hang on i'm going to try to figure out if they would have planned for that now don't be a dick and just try to come up with something to destroy their plan if it's a good plan what you're thinking of is would this npc have foreseen what they would have done and how would he have said something to a plan or a contingency for this. Don't be a dick about it and just to try to screw right. them over. If they came up with a good plan, let them have a good plan, but feel free to take a moment and take a step back and say, okay, I wasn't smart enough to do this, but I'm also not 1500 years old. So, and a yeah. master spellcaster. So,
2: yeah, that's a, uh, that's something I, a point I concretely made actually with the Lords of Dust in Everon is in an article I wrote about them. I actually specifically say they are the villain I will cheat with. Because, yes, they have calculated everything out and they do have prophetic knowledge. And, you know, they are a point where I may say, oh, yeah, they knew you were going to do that, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's part of what distinguishes them as a villain. As you say, it's when you're playing a villain who's smarter than you.
0: Okay, guys, we are way past last call right now. So uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap up real quick. uh... Keith, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about uh, what you're working on again for sure. the audience and uh, let us know where they can find you on the interwebs?
2: Okay, so I can be found at keith-baker.com. Uh, I am also on Twitter as hellcowkeith, all one word. Uh, currently, I am working on some more gloom things. Uh, I'm working on a new role-playing game called Phoenix, which I talk about on my website and uh, you know, will be – Uh, Crowdfunding early 2014, and you know I also do regular uh, Eberron Q and As every uh, couple of weeks on my website. I think there's been two in the
0: past week or two. I think.
2: Well, the last week, yeah, the the question came up that I was just like, "Oh, that's a good thing to explore." So that that's been unusual, but yes. uh, But you know, I try to at least do one every couple of weeks. So, and uh, that's where you can find me.
1: Thank you very much, Keith. I think Daryl and I have been very, very grateful to have you on the show. Uh, It's been wonderful talking about DM stuff with you, and we'd love to have you back in the future at some point.
2: Thanks. I would love to come back, uh, especially once Phoenix is out, so I can talk more concretely about that. All right.
0: And that wraps things up for Episode 9 of The Gamer's Tavern. I'd like to once again thank our guest Keith Baker for taking the time out of his very busy schedule and being with us tonight. I, I know it sounds like we got a little heated there talking about villains, but I consider Keith a friend and it was great to debate with him. And even if I disagreed with him a little bit, I did learn a lot from him and hopefully you learned a lot as well. If you have a tip for running your games, or if you want to weigh in on anything that we said, please visit GamersTavern.org and leave us a comment. Your comment might just be read on air. And if you want to support the show, please visit our site and check out our sponsors. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash gamers, tavern, or follow us on Twitter at meet a tavern, or you can rate and review us on iTunes. Next week <clears throat> no, sorry, sorry. Um next week we really hit something that I come on guys, I write for Anical cool News. The topic is the influence of television and film on gaming and how gaming has influenced television and film. I talk a lot. Anyway, I do give plenty of time to our guests, both game designer Mac Martin and Alan Kearney, aka Nordling. My editor over at Anacol News. So, yeah, I'm kind of on my best behavior. The Gamers Tavern is distributed under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivatives license. The theme to Gamers Tavern is copyright 2013, Daryl Jr., all rights reserved. Until next time, gamers,
2: the tavern is closed.